find the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. Historically, Protestants look at the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and we call these books minor prophets. In the Jewish tradition, they're all grouped together. They're called the Book of the Twelve. And at least in most Protestant churches, most evangelical churches, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the minor prophets. We just kind of leave them there. They're short. There's some things that are hard to understand, and uh, we don't pay a lot of attention to them. And so hopefully it's been helpful for you to walk through these books one at a time on Sunday mornings and to see that they really are applicable to everyday life. The things that they said thousands of years ago are very applicable to the situations that we find ourselves in today. And hopefully you know a thing or two about the Minor Prophets by the time we get through this series. I heard about a a conference over the weekend, and one of the speakers was about to get up, and this is one of my worst nightmares. When you see me on Sunday morning, I don't let my Bible out of my hands. It's got my notes in it. I'm ready. The speaker turned around to go up on the platform and couldn't, the Bible was gone. Their Bible was gone. They didn't know where it was, and they were up. And so they turned around to somebody on the front row and said, hey, I need your Bible because I'm about to speak, and I need a Bible to, to do the talk. And so they got this other person's Bible, and they got up on the stage and explained what happened and said some comment about, you know, it's nice to see you have some notes in here, some things you've scribbled and, and you've been reading, and was getting ready to go into the talk. And then the speaker said, I wonder how saved you are. I wonder if you have any notes in Habakkuk and opened the person's Bible to Habakkuk and said, you know you're really saved if you've got notes in the Minor Prophets. So maybe by the end of this series, you have a few notes in the Minor Prophets. If somebody ever needs your Bible at the last minute, they'll be very impressed with all the things you've scribbled in the margins about Habakkuk or this morning about Zephaniah. I want to give you a little bit of historical background, and this is in the bulletin and the outline if you like to follow along with a few background issues. Zephaniah preached after the exile of Israel in 722 and before the exile of Judah in 586. He's in this window between the two exiles. And so the timeline for all of these prophets should be looking familiar to you if you've been here uh, several weeks out of the last couple as we've talked about the minor prophets. And so we'll put this back up on the screen this morning. The unified kingdom is the nation of Israel, all of the tribes under one monarch. That was first Saul, and then it was David, and then it was Solomon. And after Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam split the nation in half. Jeroboam took the northern tribes, and immediately they set up idols in different capital cities that they established. Rehoboam took the southern tribes, but now you have a divided kingdom. You have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel, like I said, from the get-go is idolatrous. They turn away from Yahweh immediately, and they begin to whore after and worship and chase after other gods. And eventually, God sends them into exile. He sends the nation of Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom in 722, and those people are scattered from the promised land and sent out into exile. The same thing happens just a few years later in 586 to the southern kingdom of Judah. They had a few good kings here and there, but for the most part, they were just as rotten as their their cousins up north. And in 586, God sent the the Babylonians, they conquered Jerusalem, they conquered Judah, and they sent those people into exile as well. Zephaniah comes right in between the two exiles. That means he's preaching in Judah in the south, 
and the north, Israel, has already been sent into exile, and he knows the same thing is coming for Judah, but it hasn't happened yet, so he fits right in this window. There's a clue in Zephaniah 1.1 that helps us pin this down a little bit further. Zephaniah preached during the reign of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. And he just tells us in verse 1 that he was a prophet during the reign of Josiah. And so I showed you these kings last week. These are the last five kings of Judah. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Zephaniah tells us, I was right here with Josiah. When you look at that list, you understand if you've read the Old Testament, Josiah is the last good king of Judah. In fact, he was a really good king. He became king when he was about eight years old, and he was on the throne for about 30 years. He led some amazing religious reforms. He got rid of the idols, and they celebrated the Passover. They cleaned out the temple. They restored the book of the law to the rightful place in the nation. But then he dies. He goes into a battle against Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, and he dies in battle. And after Josiah, it's a really quick downhill slide. Jehoahaz rolls back all those religious reforms. They go right back after the same idols. And many of these last few four guys right here, most of these guys, they didn't reign very long. They were just up on the throne, propped up on the throne. Then they were taken out. Another one up on the throne, they were taken out. And eventually the people end up in exile. One last detail from history that just pins Zephaniah down. In Zephaniah 2.13, he talks about the fall of Nineveh, and he talks about it as a future event. He's looking forward to the day when Nineveh is conquered, and historians can tell us with pretty accurate certainty that that happened in 612 BC. So we know that he's looking forward to that event. It gives us a pretty tight window for when he preached. Now, throughout this study, I've had a stack of books And every week I've gone to those books and I've read the chapter or the chapters on the minor prophet that we're looking at. And I found a quote that I really liked. It's from a book called The Message of the Twelve. And this is what it says in the introduction to Zephaniah. It was once said that the message of the prophets can be summarized by two contrasting themes. Things are going to get really, really, really bad And then things are going to get really, really, really good. If ever there was a book that reflects this dichotomy at its core, it's the book of Zephaniah. I don't know about you, but I like things that just boil it down and kind of make it simple for me, where I can see the big picture. And I think if you see the big picture, it makes some of the small details easier to understand. This is Zephaniah at its heart. This is the message of the prophets at heart. It's going to get really, really, really bad. God's going to punish you because of your sin. But then it's going to get really, really, really good, better than it's ever been before. Not because you are so good, but because God is so gracious to his people. That's the heart of Zephaniah. And if we just tried to summarize Zephaniah in one sentence, here's what it would be. Zephaniah is a book about God. You could say that about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, every book in the Bible, you could say God's the main character, but it shines through so clearly in Zephaniah. This is a book about God. God is the one promising judgment on his people. He's at the heart of that. God is the one calling his people to repentance. He's at the heart of that. God is the one promising restoration and redemption and hope for his people. He's at the heart of it. From beginning to end, this book is telling us this is who God 
is. It's a book about God. Just a few more contextual pieces that we'll try to put in place before we talk about the message of the book and what we take away. Zephaniah, the name means the Lord hides or the Lord protects. Zephaniah was a contemporary of Nahum and Habakkuk. Wasn't exactly on the scene at the same time as these guys, but we just sort of put them in the same era, contemporaries as prophets. Zephaniah traces his genealogy back to King Hezekiah. This is interesting. You can really go down a rabbit hole on this one. He's the only minor prophet that gives you an extended genealogy, and he tells you that he was a descendant of Hezekiah, which is interesting. He wasn't from the line of descent that would have assumed the throne in Judah, trailing it down from Hezekiah, but he was from one of Hezekiah's younger sons. So in a sense, he's sort of a a royal prophet. He comes from sort of two camps. One, he's connected with the, the kings and the royal family, but he's also the prophet that is rebuking those kings and rebuking the people for their idolatry. So you can sort of trace that out if you have interest later. What was the message of the book? It's really a simple book. I don't want to overcomplicate it. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it's really not that complicated. Here's the message of the book. Number one, God promised to judge the nations, plural. Number two, God called his people to repentance. And number three, God promised to restore a remnant. And just roughly, if you want to think about Zephaniah, in the, in the English translation that you're reading out of it, it has three chapters, and you can think about each chapter roughly as communicating one of these ideas. The, the breaks aren't exact on the chapter and verses, but this sort of gives you the big picture. Chapter 1, God's going to judge the nations. Chapter 2, he's calling the people to repentance. Chapter 3, he's going to restore a remnant. And I just want you to look at a, a few examples of these these ideas. Look at Zephaniah 1-2. After he gets the, the introduction out of the way, this is a remarkable way to begin a book. Zephaniah 1-2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's pretty dramatic, right? You could just say, I'm going to wipe it all out, but he's piling up these words. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the entire earth. It's this idea that God is going to bring judgment on the nations. It's this idea we read from the quote earlier that things are going to get really, really, really bad. So Zephaniah 1-2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Look at Zephaniah 2 verse 3. It says, Seek the Lord... All you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He's begging the people. He's commanding the people. He's calling the people to seek the Lord. Turn away from your sin and and seek the Lord. We're going to come back to that idea later. Now look at Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, just to get an idea of this restoration Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness and he will quiet you by his love. 
Just those three verses sort of show you the movement of the book. Movement number one, God's going to utterly wipe away everything from the face of the earth. Movement number two, you had better seek the Lord today. You'd better do it now. There's an urgency to this message, to this repentance. And then number three, God's going to bring restoration to his people. He's going to save you. He's going to rejoice over you. That's such a strange thought. We think we're the ones who rejoice and praise God, but Zephaniah says he's the one that's going to rejoice over you. He's going to quiet you with his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. In each of those movements, God's at the center. God's at the center. He's the one that's going to sweep it all away. He's the one that you should seek and turn towards. And he's the one that's going to restore his people in the end. Right? The message is sort of this this three part of judgment and repentance and then restoration. But what do we do with, with that message? What do we take away from Zephaniah? And the answer is we walk away with a certain picture of who God is, of what he's like. And the people in Zephaniah's day needed to be reminded of these things. And we, in 2018 in Odessa, need to be reminded of these things. And so the question we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, how should we think about God after reading Zephaniah? Right? There's nothing in Zephaniah that you don't find in other places in the Bible. Nothing unique to Zephaniah. But everything he says comes back to God. And so we're left with this question, how should Zephaniah shape the way that we think about God? I want to give you a few suggestions, and then we're going we're to respond to the God that we're studying this morning. So how do we think about God? Number one, there's only one God. There's only one God. You say, well, that's easy. That's obvious, that's basic, that's simple, that's elementary. We all believe that. We all know that. Well, they didn't know it in Zephaniah's day. And I'm just going to tell you for a fact, we don't know it in our day. And he starts off saying to the people, there is only one that you should worship. There is only one God. Look at Zephaniah chapter 1. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. The Lord is speaking through Zephaniah, and he says this in Zephaniah 1, 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests And those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord. All caps. That's Yahweh, Jehovah. Just take that in. We're going to stretch out his hand against Judah and Jerusalem. We're going to cut off the remnant of Baal. We're going to cut off the idolatrous priests and those who bow down on the roofs and those who bow down to the host of heavens. All all up to that, you're saying, yes, yes. We're going to cut these people off. And then he says, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. Both. They're still worshiping the Lord, at least they think they are. 
but they're also worshiping Milcom and the Baals and the hosts of heaven and whatever the idolatrous priest put in front of them. They're worshiping those two. They've, they've not gotten rid of the Lord. They're just adding two. And he says these people are going to be cut off, those who have turned back from following the Lord. They're swearing to the Lord. They're making vows to the Lord. They're making promises to the Lord, but they're doing it in the context of all these other gods being involved in their worship, and God's take on it is, you have turned back from following the Lord. You do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. This is fascinating to me. God sees what's happening among the people, and Zephaniah sees what's happening. They have not cut Yahweh out of their theological discourse. They still talk about Yahweh, the Lord. They still have a temple to Yahweh, the Lord. They're still going and swearing to Him and and making offerings to Him and doing all of these things. The problem is they've added to worshiping the Lord. And now they're worshiping the hosts of heaven and Milcom and the Baals and following these idolatrous priests. What they've done is what Bible scholars or theologians call syncretism. They've taken some of this faith, worshiping Yahweh, and then they've taken some of this faith, worshiping other gods, and they've tried to mash them together into some sort of horrific Frankenstein-type faith. And it's really not... Baal worship anymore, and it's really not worshiping Yahweh anymore. It's this new thing, and God looks at that, and he says, I'm going to cut that off. And this is fascinating, because if you went to these people and you asked these people, do you believe in Yahweh? Do you know what they would have said? Yeah. Do you think Yahweh is worthy of worship and sacrifice? Do you know what they would have said? Yeah. Do you believe Yahweh is your God? Do you know what they would have said? Yes. But they've just taken all this other and they've mashed it together. And the Lord looks at that and through Zephaniah he says, I don't accept that. You look back on it in 2018 and you say, well, this is just one of those other Old Testament stories, these people were hard-headed and stiff-necked, and they just, they did it over and over and over again. Those people back then. There's a ministry called Ligonier Ministries. Every two years they do something. It's a survey. It's a big survey. It's called the State of Theology. They did one this year for the U.K., and they did one for the United States. And the U.K. is, depending on how you look at it, was maybe worse, maybe better, I don't know. Let me just talk to you about some of the results they found in the United States of America. You can find this online. Basically, they sit down, and you can see this circle with with some numbers around the middle. It says state of theology. They ask 47 questions, or really they don't ask questions. They make statements, 47 statements. And they say this, put it out there, this proposition, this truth. Do you agree? Do you disagree? The interesting thing about the study in the UK is that they had a big category in the middle of people who said, I don't care. I don't agree. I don't disagree. I just don't care either way. In the United States, there weren't very many people in the middle. Most people either agreed or disagreed. And I just want to read to you two statements they set before people, and I want to show you the the results. These are not the answers for Americans. You understand? These are the answers for people who go to churches like ours. Catholics aren't included in this. 
Crazy cult groups are not included in this, right? People who are, are in mainline liberal Protestant churches that don't believe the Bible is true, they are not included in this. These are people polled. And the answers I'm going to show you in the numbers are people who go to churches very much like ours. If you visited these churches, you'd probably feel reasonably comfortable. Statement number one that I'll share with you. God accepts the worship of all religions. And among people who go to churches just like ours in the United States, 51% say, yes, we agree. More than half. All religions, God accepts their worship just the same. Secondly, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. One out of every three says, yes, that's true. It's just about what works for you. We're not talking about anything that's really true, like completely true, like scientifically true, like absolutely true, like it's true for everyone. We're just talking about sort of opinions and preferences and, and feelings. I hope you understand that these numbers are disastrous. They're a train wreck for the state of theology in churches just like ours. And I hope you understand that those numbers go against what you see in Zephaniah and against what you see in the rest of the Old Testament, and they go against the teachings of Jesus. You can't just pin this on an Old Testament thing. Say, well, that's what it was in the Old Testament. Now we're, we're much more open-minded. No, Jesus was very close-minded on these questions, on these issues, and everything in the New Testament aligns with Jesus. Listen, Zephaniah says to these people, it really doesn't matter that you're very sincere and passionate about your worship. Because of the one that you're worshiping, God is going to cut you off. He does not accept the worship of Milcom. He does not accept the worship of Baal. He's not going to look at you worshiping the stars in the sky, the hosts of heaven, and say, well, you know, I mean, they're doing the best they can. They're misguided. I'm just going to accept that like they were really directing it towards me. He says, no, 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 no. It, it doesn't even make it better if you just throw me into the mix. I don't want to be in the mix. It's not accepted. Everything else in the Old Testament aligns with it. And then along comes Jesus of Nazareth, the one that so many of us think is just laid back and easygoing and he's all grace and everything's, you know, everything's cool. And Jesus says, Things like, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through me. Those other religions don't cut it. They don't work. They're not going to get you to the Father. You're going down a dead-end road. There's one way. And then Peter comes along, and Peter says, there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved, and it's the name Jesus Christ. There's no other name. God's not accepting the, the worship or the faith of these other religions. There's only one way. It's very exclusive. And then the Apostle Paul writes to his protege, and he says, Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and, and men, mankind. It's the man Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator. There's only one way to have access to the Father. God's not going to just accept all of this worship as if you were just doing the best you can. There's only one way. And you may bristle against that. You may say, like the rest of our culture, well, I don't like it. 
That's very narrow-minded. It's very offensive. It's very arrogant. And you can say all of those things, but that's what the Scripture says in the Old Testament and in the New. God will not accept the worship of these other deities. He says it right here in Zephaniah. I'm going to cut it off. He says, I'm going to wipe everything from the face of the earth, including Judah, including the people who have just added me to their personal religious mix. Look, we don't get to do theology like you get to do Furs Cafeteria. You understand that? Some people in the office went to Furs this week, and I rejoiced that I had other plans and I couldn't go with them. But when you go to Furs, you walk in and you get on the line and you say, you know, that broccoli salad, that looks pretty good, but the, eh, the pea salad looks a little funky. I'm going to pass on that. I'll have some of this, but not that. Then you get down to the meat section. I use the term meat loosely, but it's the meat section. And you say, I need some of that baked fish. I love that baked fish, but I do not want the fried. And you get to pick and you choose and you go all the way down. And you say, well, I, I feel good about this. I don't want this. And then the great part about furs is like you can try it out. And if you don't like it, you can go back and get something else, right? You can just kind of recycle through the line and say, well, that didn't work out so good the first time. Let me try something different this time. You don't get to do theology that way. That's what the people were doing in Zephaniah's day. They weren't trying to to be anti-religious. They weren't a bunch of atheists. They weren't trying to cut Yahweh's name out of the, the religious discourse or the political discourse or any kind of discourse. They were swearing to Yahweh. They were making promises to him and vows to him. But they had just added him to the mix of all the other stuff that they were serving. The numbers that I showed you are proof that believers in the United States, professed believers, are very confused about this first truth from Zephaniah. It seems so basic. It seems like, well, that's something for the little kids down the hall. That's something that we shouldn't have to cover in in big church. Why are we talking about something so basic? It's because in Zephaniah's day, they didn't get it. And in our day, we don't get it. There is only one God. Only one. Secondly, God is active in the world. He's active in the world. Look at Zephaniah 1.12. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Circle that word complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord, Yahweh. See, they're still talking about Yahweh. It's not like they've completely forgotten him from their memory banks. The Lord, Yahweh, will not do good, nor will he do ill. These are people who are very comfortable talking about God. They're very comfortable talking about the God of Israel, Yahweh. But the prophet says they're complacent in their heart. And the bottom line is they really don't think anything's going to happen one way or the other. We're just going to keep on going just like we're going, just like it's always been. God's, he's not going to do anything about it one way or the other. And the prophet is doing his best to just explode that idea, to just blow it right out of the water. And look what he says. Here's how he blows it out of the water. He keeps talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. A day is coming, a day is coming, a day is coming. It's so redundant when you're reading. If you want to make notes in Zephaniah, here's one of the notes you make. You start circling the word day. Look at Zephaniah 1, verse 7. The day of the Lord is near. 
verse 8, the day of the Lord's sacrifice, verse 9, on that day I will punish everyone, verse 10, on that day declares the Lord. Jump down to verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Verse 15, it just, here we go. The day of wrath, the day of distress, a day of ruin, a day of darkness, a day of clouds, a day of trumpet. Over and over, the prophet is saying, you may be complacent, you may be comfortable. The fact that God has been patient with you and that he's slow to anger, it may make you feel very comfortably complacent, like you can just continue and nothing's ever going to change. But God is active in the world. He sees what you're doing. He knows what you're doing. He's not indifferent to what's happening. And he has fixed a day where he's going to do something about it. And he just says it over and over and over again. You can respond in one of two ways. You can take God's patience and you can just be complacent with it and say, oh, I have time. Oh, I'll, get, I'll get that lined up later. I, I'll worry about that repentance stuff later. Not while I'm in high school. Well, I'll do it when I'm in college. Not when I'm in college. After I get married. Not when I'm married, after I have kids. That's when I want my kids to be in church, so that's when I'm going to get serious about it. Well, not when my kids are little. Do you know how hard it is to go to church with little kids? Well, my kids are busy in sports, so I'm not going to do it now, but look, we are going to do it. We're going to get serious about it. I'm not going to mess around anymore. Well, you know, my kids are gone, but now I've got to go visit them. i got, you know... Maybe when I retire, I'll have time. There's not a whole lot more stages I can tack on to this. And you get the idea. We tend to be complacent people. We just tend to assume we have so much time. We'll worry about it later. God is patient. Look, he's, he's not going to judge. He's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad. There's time. Don't worry about it. It's okay. And the prophet says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't take his patience with you. For granted, he has fixed a day where he will take action. The day is coming. He's active. Number three, he's just and he's merciful. He's just and he's, and he's merciful. And I want, you, I want you to see the contrast from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Zephaniah 1, 14. says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. There is a day coming, and he goes on and he says it's a day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness, a battle cry. There is a day of judgment coming. His justice will be served. But then look at chapter 2. Verse 3, we read it earlier. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on on, on what event, on what moment, at what time? On the day of the anger of the Lord. And the prophet's given you this picture of a day of justice and judgment and wrath and a picture of God's mercy. 
And the difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2 where he says this day is coming and he says seek the Lord and maybe that day won't come upon you. The difference is repentance. And in Zephaniah, repentance is not so much described as turning from sin, but it's described as turning to God. You need to understand that that's two sides of the same coin. Sometimes the Bible talks about repentance as you need to turn away from something, but sometimes the Bible talks about repentance as you need to turn towards something. That's the same act. Don't turn from your sin to some other sin. Don't turn from your sin to some false god. Don't turn to Baal. Don't turn to Milcom. Don't turn to the host of heaven. Seek the Lord. Some of you need to do it right now. Right now. Not when we sing a song in a few minutes. Not when I pray at the end of the sermon. You need to do it right now because you say, in my heart, I'm complacent. I think I have time. I think I'll do it later. I'm not going to worry about it right now. And right now, Zephaniah is saying to you, the Spirit of God is saying to you, seek the Lord right now. Now. Be humble. Confess your sin and acknowledge His holiness and turn to Him for mercy. Do it now. Don't wait. Don't say, I'm going to do it at the end of the service. Don't say, I'm going to do it when I go home today. Don't say, you know, he's right. I really need to get some things in line. And then I need to, you need to do it right now. He is just and he's merciful. And you will experience one of those. The difference is repentance. Will you turn from your sin and will you turn to the Lord? Next, God is the judge of the world. He's the judge of all the nations of all mankind. And we won't read this entire section. I just want you to see some of the, the nations who are singled out. The list of nations here is not intended to say these are the only ones. It's just sort of intended to hit all of them in sort of a summary fashion. Look at Zephaniah 2.4. He talks about Gaza. That's the Philistines. Look at Zephaniah 2.8. He talks about Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Judgment will come for them. Look at Zephaniah 2.12. He talks about Cush. That's down towards the land of Egypt. Look at Zephaniah 2.13. He talks about Nineveh and Assyria. God's judgment is going to fall on these people. And then you get to chapter 3 and there's a curveball. Because he's going around Israel. He's listing all these nations. God's going to bring judgment to all these places. And then he brings it home. And the curveball is he's going to judge Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. That's not Nineveh, that's Jerusalem. That's the people who are swearing by the Lord and Milcom and Bel and the host of heaven. Woe to the rebellious and the defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Judgment will come for all the nations, including Jerusalem. And the summary of it all comes in Zephaniah 3, verse 8. It says, Wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, my decision is to gather nations and to assemble kingdoms and to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That goes right back to the beginning of the book. Right back to the beginning where he says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He says, I'm going to gather all the nations and no one will escape this judgment. No one will get a free pass. 
No one gets a wink and a nod. You understand this is why as a church we're serious about missions. We talk about this in our new member class. And we try to share it with you and remind you of it from time to time. We really believe, not sort of believe, not eh, kind of, not eh, we're indifferent. We really believe that there is not a person on the planet who will not stand before the judge of the universe. We believe that. Every man, woman, boy, girl, all of them will stand before the judge. That's why we, we send shoeboxes around the world because there's people who need to hear the good news. And maybe if we send a box, something just as small and silly as a box, they'll have the opportunity to hear. That's why we take a world missions offering. That's why I tell you every November and December, this is the most important missions offering, the most important offering, the most important giving we do throughout the entire year is to give sacrificially and generously, to give till it hurts so that people can go and take the good news of Jesus. Because there's people all over the world who one day will die and they will stand before the judge and they've never heard the name of Jesus. And Zephaniah is telling us, I'm going to gather all of them and they will stand before me, before the judge. And the Bible is clear in the Old Testament and the New. The only hope that people have of salvation is hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. is turning from their sins and trusting in Jesus. When we say we believe that, we really believe it. God is the judge of the world. He will judge all the nations, all of mankind Last idea is this, God is the Savior of His people. And thankfully, the book of Zephaniah ends with this. Thankfully, it doesn't end with Zephaniah 3.8. It could end there. That could be the period at the end of the book. There's going to be a judgment. God's going to make it right. He's just. He will handle things rightly. The end. But there's more. It's not just bad news. There's good news. And I want you to look at the, the last few verses of Zephaniah Look at Zephaniah 3, 9. He says, At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Jump down to verse 11. On that day, you will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. You see, there's an acknowledgement that you're a sinner. You have rebelled against me. Your, de- your deeds should bring shame upon you. He says, you're not going to be shamed because of the deeds with which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in the land, who are left in Israel, will do will do no injustice and speak no lies. There will be found in their mouth, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. We read verse 17, the the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Look down at verse 20. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. I will restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Listen to me. This last piece of Zephaniah, God is the Savior of his people. If you don't see that fulfilled in Jesus, you don't have eyes to see. 
if you don't see everything in Zephaniah fulfilled in Jesus, then you're missing the point. Just look at that list. There is only one God. There is one God that you have sinned against and that you will stand before someday. And the one God sent his only son that there might be a way for you to be made right with him. There is one mediator between God and sinful human beings, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. You can take offense at that and call that exclusive and narrow-minded and bigoted and whatever other adjective you want to tack onto it, or you can look at it for what it is. It's God's grace to you. You don't deserve one way, and he has made a way. You can complain that he hasn't made two or three or four or ten, but what you ought to do is say thank you that you made a way, one way. He's active in the world. He didn't just sit back and wait for you to make yourself right with him. He didn't just sit back and say, well, look, when they get their act together, then if they'll meet me halfway, I'll come halfway. Christ died for us while we were sinners, Paul tells the church in Rome. He took action. He was proactive. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. John tells, tells his, his readers, God loved us. It's, it's not that we loved God, but it's that God loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's active. He's just and he's merciful. At the cross, he pours out justice and judgment on sin. And sinners who are guilty, who should be shamed by their rebellion, can know the mercy of God. He's the judge. Everyone will give an account. Every man, woman, boy, girl, everyone. And the only hope that you have in the day of judgment, the day, is to be found in Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. Zephaniah writes to the people, and his message is pretty simple. He says, you know what? It's going to get really, really, really bad. But then it's going to get really, really, really good. And the difference is not that you're going to suddenly have a light bulb go off or it's going to click or you're going to get it all together. The difference is Jesus. What you deserve is the really, really, really bad. What you get in Jesus is the really, really, really good.